Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chan. This week, we're going to talk about blockchain, because it keeps coming up in articles I'm reading, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> and Serena says that she does know what it is, and so that will be what this episode is about. Serena, what is blockchain? Okay, full disclaimer at first, um, I am not a blockchain expert at all. But blockchain is basically, it's a technology behind things like Bitcoin, a lot of um, cryptocurrencies. And it can also be the technology behind a bunch of other things. And what it basically is, is a agreed upon sequence of events, if you will. Blockchain has a lot of like different pretty weedsy mathematical concepts that um, make it work but it's basically it's basically a history of events that you're supposed to be able to trust because of maths is the like very high overview of it but we already have that in computers that's like how banks work kind of so the thing that makes neoliberal nerds gush over blockchain is that it's decentralized so with our current currency structure our current transactions are all kind of verified by central banks and that is a centralized structure so if a central bank is somehow corrupt then that is you know bad for everyone because everyone relies on this single point of failure for all of their transactional needs whereas the idea with cryptocurrencies is that if someone is corrupt, if someone is trying to be fraudulent, then they're only one person. And with the power of the people, you can avoid that single point of failure. And then this is when you get to like start talking about the ledger and you start to talk about proof of work and all of that fun stuff. Okay. So is it is it just like a lot of computers all say that a thing happened, therefore a thing happened? Not quite. There's okay. um, yeah. It's it's hard to know where to start with blockchain because there's so many different kind of concepts and ideas, and they're all quite mathematically involved. Okay. Essentially, why is it better than whatever we had before blockchain? It's not necessarily better. It's simply decentralized, and it's a different way to uh, have a proxy for trust. So right now we have currency um, and if I give someone ten dollars for a thing that person is trusting that that ten dollars has value and I'm trusting that that person will give me the thing right mm-hmm. but when you extrapolate out to larger and larger communities then like my ten dollars having value uh, it becomes harder and harder to trust basically the the higher up you scale which is why we've got central banks. They have this authority to say, hey, your $10 is worth $10. And what I'm doing is I'm basically putting my trust in a proxy. So instead of trusting the person that I'm making that direct transaction with, I'm trusting a central bank to basically back my money and my currency and my transactions. With cryptocurrencies reliant on blockchain, what they do is they take that kind of corpus of trust and they put it into computing power proof of work Um, so instead of trusting a central bank i now trust all of these computers doing this proof of work and i trust that um that proof of work is so much that, that it has to be real maybe um maybe we should start from something a bit more simpler because i'm realizing now that it's it's hard to explain what blockchain and cryptocurrencies are since it's reliant on so many things, it's like trying to explain a fourth-year math concept when we haven't done first year yet. Yeah, no, wherever's easiest to start because, like, like I said, like I know it involves computers, yeah. and I know it involves a lot of computers, and that's kind of the end of my knowledge. And that's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, so let's say, uh, let's say you, me, and like some other friends. We, like, go out for movies a lot, we do things as a group a lot, and sometimes, like, one person will pay for the group, and, like, we'll have a thing that's like, oh, I owe you 20 bucks, and tomorrow it's like, oh, like, you owe Alice 30 bucks, kind of thing, Um, and it's annoying to, like, give a lot of money, so basically what we do is, let's say we write down IOUs, and then at the end of the month we settle up. You'll hear a lot about this thing called the ledger, 
right? The ledger is God. Um, and the ledger is basically just this list of IOUs written down. Mm-hmm. So let's say I give you $30 and I'll write that down in the ledger. I pay Sophia $30. Um, let's say you pay Alice uh, $50. So you write it down next in the ledger, number two, Sophia pays Alice $30. And this ledger is kind of like the the history. It is the truth. But if only one person is in charge of the ledger, then what if that one person is not a very good friend and like puts down fraudulent transactions in the ledger. So a way to kind of combat this is to say, okay, well, let's say everyone has a copy of the ledger, and every time I make a transaction, so let's say every time I pay you $10, I'm going to write it down, and then I'm going to tell everyone else that I paid you $10. And so everyone else copies that down. So now we've got like a history thing going on where it's decentralized, right? But the problem is, what if Charlie, who does fraudulent things, what if Charlie says, um, Sophia pays Charlie $50? And then she goes and broadcasts out and says, hey, everyone, Sophia pays Charlie $30. And everyone copies that down. So that that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And how we get around this problem is by signing all of our payments. So in the security and privacy episode... You'll remember that we talked a lot about cryptography and encryption. Mm-hmm. So this is like exactly the same kind of technology that we can use to basically do a digital signature. So if I say I pay you $10, then I'm going to sign that digitally with my secret key. And then everyone else knows my public key and can verify it. So they can really easily check that, yes, I have signed this transaction and yes i paid you ten dollars and no one else is claiming that i'm claiming that right yeah so this is how we get around the whole like trust issue of fraud it's like oh did this person actually pay this person this money okay they did because i can see their public key and i can verify that they signed it because when you do these kinds of like encryption stuff it's it's stuff that's really computational easy to check that it's right, but it's computational really hard to do again, to forge, to kind of reverse engineer to see how it actually worked. So that's like, is that like an NP problem? Um, yes. <laughs> so I can't actually answer that because this is an unsolved problem in computer science where the um, NP class problems are actually the same class of problems as P problems. And for those of you who haven't heard of this NP versus P problem, um, it describes how computationally hard problems are to solve. And there's a thing called polynomial time, which is you could think of as like kind of hard, but like a computer can probably do it kind of problems. Uh, and NP problems, which are non-polynomial time, which are like super, super difficult problems that computers uh, have a lot of trouble with. And usually they're problems that you can verify easily. Like if you have a solution, it's like, yes, that's a solution. But to get an algorithm to actually come up with the solutions is extremely hard. That is a whole other topic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's fascinating. So, yeah, it's it's something that's, you know, hard to do, but easy to verify, which is really great because then it's like, I can say that I paid you $10 um, and it's really hard for anyone else to forge that. But it's really easy for them to see the proof that I've signed it. Cool. So now we have a ledger, a list of transactions, where everyone signs it. And it's really important also that every single ledger comes after one another. So they have an order to them. Because what happens is that we will take the, the order. So let's say mine is the 10th transaction. And I'll append it on to the thing that I sign so that no one else can just copy and paste my uh, my transaction and say, Serena paid Sophia $10. Serena paid Sophia $10 and just keep copy and pasting. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's an orderedness to it all, which is really important as well. So it's like, okay, everyone's got a copy of the ledger. And whenever I pay someone, I write it down, I sign it, and I broadcast it out to everyone. So everyone can see that I've paid you $10. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, here's the other problem. 
which is, again, economies of scale, is that when there's heaps of people, what if I broadcast something out and some people don't hear my broadcast? How do I tell, like, who to trust, basically? Because every time I broadcast something out, I'm broadcasting out not only my transaction, but, like, the entire ledger. So I'm basically appending what I want to happen onto the history of everything, and I'm broadcasting the whole thing out. It seems like it would take a lot of computing power. It does. Okay. <laughs> it does. So how do I make sure that when I listen to other people broadcasting, I'm getting the current picture, and how do I make sure that everyone else is also getting the current picture, and how do I make sure that... Um, that someone who hasn't heard my broadcast will hear it from someone else, which is another big problem. And how we do this is um, there's a thing called a proof of work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my ledger and I'm going to organize it. I'm just going to say this ledger is now a block and I'm going to hash that entire block. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this function and this hash function is something that you can put data in and it will give you out a bunch of like random looking ones and zeros. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and add a special number on the ledger mm -hmm. to make the output those ones and zeros. Maybe I want like, I want it to start with, I don't know, like 50 zeros. Um, that's going to be really hard because the output of that function is seemingly random it's very hard to compute what kind of input will give you what kind of output um, so what I basically have to do is I have to get my computer to literally throw random numbers into this function until it can guess the right output and that takes up a lot of computing power Mm -hmm. It sounds like an easy thing to do, to just, like, generate functions and see if it happens. But if I wanted uh, a hash function to start with 50 zeros, that's, what is that? 2 to the power of 50. Um, a very big number. It's a very big number. So it's a lot of computational work for me to find that special number that makes this pretty output that I want. But once I find it, then that becomes a block basically. And I can broadcast out that out to everyone. And I can say, hey, I've done the work to basically verify this block. And the protocol in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and the like is that whenever you hear stuff, you hear chains of blocks and chains of ledgers and whatnot, you accept the one that has done the most work. So what I'll do is I'll get a ledger I'll do all the computational work that it takes to make the output have, I don't know, 50 zeros at the beginning or something. And I'll find the special number and I'll say, here is the special number. I found it and everyone else can verify it because it's really easy to verify, but it's really hard to find that special number. Mm -hmm. So everyone else can verify and say, wow, okay, you've done the proof of work. That is a block. Um, and when new transactions get added to the ledger, what they can do is they can take my block, hash that and say, this is the previous block that I'm building on. This is the new ledger that I'm like tacking on to the end of this block. And I'm going to create a new block by finding a new special number that fulfills the whole, I don't know, 50 zeros at the start of the hash kind of thing. So someone else is going to have to do all of that work to find the special number. And once they find it and they're like, hey, everyone. I've done all this work, I've found the special number, now this is now a valid block, it's now a valid part of history, and it's now a valid thing that goes on the end of that chain. What happens if someone accidentally uses an old block? So like, is there a possibility for, because like, I think I understand why it's called blockchain now, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> is there a possibility for like the chain to diverge, like someone accidentally uses an older block with an older special number? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so um, the valid block or the valid chain, the true chain of events, uh, is given by the longest chain, basically. Because okay. the longer the chain is, the more special numbers that had to be found. And the more special numbers that had to be found means um, the more computational work has gone into creating this chain. So basically, you trust the longest chain. Okay. 
and that's that's how like the whole trust thing happens and that's how the whole proof of work thing happens and what i've actually described like these people trying to find these special numbers trying to verify these blocks um that's what mining is so in bitcoin um, and other cryptocurrencies as well miners will get a a reward basically for doing all that computational work for verifying that block for finding that special number and i think when bitcoin started it was something like you get 50 bitcoin for verifying a block and it's like a every set number of transactions that number gets halved or something yeah so what this means is that there is always new currency being added to the bitcoin Mm -hmm. Um, however as time gets on it's harder and harder to get that new currency because it goes down geometrically and because it goes down geometrically and you'll never get more than something like 21 million bitcoin so it's, it's kind of like a nice currency design like there will be inflation um but it's limited and this gives incentives to miners to actually verify blocks so what they'll do is they'll find that special number they'll do all that work and at the end when they find that special number, they get to add a special transaction onto the end of that ledger, which says Serena gets uh, 0.0625 Bitcoin, because I've done all that work. Um, and this is what mining is, and this is why people who mined Bitcoin in the early days had a lot of Bitcoin quite easily, because they had to do less work for more Bitcoin. And this is why mining is quite difficult now, and it's why people mine it's an it's an incentive for people to find these special numbers to basically verify the blockchain and do that work to verify it so people like you and me who might only just want to do transactional things on the blockchain all we have to do is listen for the longest blockchain and follow that okay how is blockchain used for other stuff then because like the ledger and the currency analogy like that makes a lot of sense to me like i've Hmm. worked in retail i've used ledgers before that's good yeah but people have suggested like blockchain as a way of like encrypting data and when we went to that future assembly there was someone who's like blockchain but for democracy and how (laughs) um so blockchain is basically a, a proxy for trust right so you've got people digitally signing a thing it could be a message, uh, it could be a contract, it could be um, legislation. And you've got a way to verify history by means of computational work. Um, again, I have to emphasize that these are all proxies for trust. They're not actual trust. It's not like I come up to you and I trust you as a human and therefore we can agree on something because this is meant for large decentralized communities it's saying instead of trusting you i'm going to trust that this blockchain has uh, done a lot of computational work and therefore is true because a lot of people have verified it is that like how passports work where like a passport is like a proxy for trusting that someone's from the country they say they're from yeah exactly yeah Exactly. It's kind of like putting your trust in um, some kind of authority instead of putting your trust in the actual person you're face-to-face talking to. Um, and in this case, we're putting our trust into into math, basically. We're putting our trust into the assumption. And it is an assumption. It's a pretty solid assumption, but it is still an assumption that cryptographic hash functions are very hard to reverse engineer. That's what we're putting our trust into. And, like, so far, that trust is sound um, because no one has found a way to reverse engineer cryptographic hash functions. So that's it's pretty solid. So we have every reason to put our trust into it. And so because blockchain is basically just a way to trust history, basically. It's, it's a way to say this thing happened and we can all agree that this thing happened. You can apply it to things that aren't just currencies, that aren't just transactional. Um, You can apply it to, I've heard a lot of startups do like smart contracts. So 
you know, everyone agrees that these people have signed a contract agreeing to these things and we can like digitally sign it and we can add it to the blockchain and then we can incentivize people to do the proof of work and have a valid block on that blockchain and then go on. And in the future, if there's any disagreement about what we've done, then it's very easy to go back to that block on the blockchain, um, verify the special number, verify its previous hash and say, hey, like verify all the digital signatures and say, hey, um, y'all have signed this and everyone can see that you've agreed to this. So would that, contracts. <laughs> would that make it pretty easy to like amend sort of controlled documents? So like contracts, like anything that's sort of a controlled document within a business? Um, I don't know about easy because you have to you have to do all this computational work to even add a block onto the blockchain. Would it make um, it more reliable to track that then is maybe a better question. Yeah, it would mean that you can uh, it would mean fraud is hard, basically. Okay. <laughs> blockchain makes fraud very difficult. And we can explain it by pretending that we want to do some fraud on the blockchain. So let's say I want to fool you, and I want to fool you into believing that I have paid you $200. Um, but I don't want anyone else. I don't want to tell anyone else that I've paid you $200. I want everyone else to think that I've paid you nothing, okay? So let's say I want to do some fraud. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, add, you know, my Serena pays Sophia $200, digitally sign it so it's valid, um, and I'm going to add that to the ledger and give you a copy of that ledger. But I'm going to not give anyone else a copy of the ledger. And in fact, the ledger that I want to broadcast to everyone else is um, the one without me giving you $200. So to do that, what I have to do is I have to go and do the computational work to find the special number um, so I can form a valid block on the blockchain. So I have to like do all that. But at the same time, because you have received my ledger as well, you're broadcasting that out to everyone. So either you or other people who have heard your copy of the ledger are also doing work, trying to verify um, verify your block so you can add it to the blockchain. And basically, it's me versus everyone else. So this is kind of where um, you can see like a voting kind of democracy analog. I have to convince everyone but I only get one vote. I only get one computer. And this is when voting is more like. So it's computational power is basically voting power in this world. And if I'm only one person with so much computational power, I can only verify so many blocks. Because it's not just the one block that I have to verify. I have to verify the block after that, the block after that, the block after that, because people trust the longest block in the blockchain, right? Mm. So if I don't keep putting in computational work to verify my fraudulent chain, people aren't going to trust it. Um, but I only have so much computational power, right? So everyone else has computational power as well. And if everyone else can see that, like, I've paid you $100 and I'm trying to convince people that I haven't, there's going to be more other people verifying blocks and creating a longer and longer blockchain. So eventually, no matter how lucky I get, my fraudulent claim is just going to be ignored and invalidated because I have a shorter blockchain. Mm -hmm. This is where the pitfall in blockchain is. Um, and it's that if you control more than 51% of the computational power, you get to write history, essentially. That is a really big pitfall in blockchain, because it starts with the idea that like one individual gets so much computational power, and it's moving from the whole one individual, one vote thing to X amount of computational power, X amount of votes. Yeah, okay. Hmm. That seems bad. It is, but because so many people have so much of their own computational power, um, so far it's all right. As long as you don't get one entity controlling more than half of a blockchain, um, you'll always have, like, the idea is that you have this distributed amount of votes, this distributed computational power, and it will be very, very difficult to commit fraud because everyone else is also doing that work to create blocks on the blockchain and to verify these blocks, so... Okay, my subsequent concern is that Google exists? Yes. 
and has a lot of computational power. <laughs> they do. Um, and so does Amazon. Yeah. And so does a, a whole lot of other companies. Yeah, I'm, I am not sure how they're going to get around that. And I'm not sure if Google is actually doing anything in the blockchain space at a large scale. I know they have a lot of ventures and like moonshot projects, but I, I'm not sure. I guess we're still in like the baby stage of cryptocurrencies because it's still kind of like a, a niche thing that everyone's kind of getting overhyped about and the bigger companies haven't seemed to made any significant moves in that space. So it's very much like a watch and see kind of thing. Okay. All right. I guess that's good. I think, yeah, I was thinking a little bit in the future, like if we look at blockchain being used for contracts, for any yeah. of those other things, who have this huge imbalance of computational power with someone who you signed a contract with digitally via, like, and it's encrypted via blockchain, like that's kind of stressful. Yeah, it is kind of scary. We're putting so much trust into these mathematical constructs. We're putting so much trust into these cryptographic hash functions and these digital signatures where you literally do not have any room for denial so nowadays if uh if someone's forged your signature mm. you can say that's not my signature whereas with a digital signature there is unless you've somehow leaked your secret key unless someone's found your secret key if you've signed it you've proved that it's you essentially so there's really no way to to prove that someone signed something under duress. What does that mean? You know, what will that mean for future contracts? Will people be a lot more scared to enter into a contract with anyone? Will there be a lot less trust between humans in general because we're offloading so much of it into, like, this cryptographic hash function, which, by the way, has not been mathematically proved to... Uh, be unbreakable. Good. Yeah, no, that's super, super reassuring. Thanks. <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing that might reassure you is that we have a, a lot of very bright minds trying to, um, to see if they can reverse engineer this and they haven't been able to so far. So, you know, we've got, you know, history, I guess, on our side. But no, there, there is no proof that you cannot find a way to somehow reverse a cryptographic hash function. Um, it's just that no one's done it so far. No one's been able to. And every way that you can is – every strategy, every algorithm we have to reverse a cryptographic hash function is no better than just guessing. So, you know, that's some reassurance. But, yeah, this is why, like, when we talked about encryption on the security and privacy episode – this is why the whole factoring prime prime numbers problem is so pivotal because so much of our digital lives depends on the fact that really big prime numbers, uh, really big numbers, are hard to prime factorize, mm -hmm. and that includes all of the encryption on of our browsers. When you see that secure lock, you know all of that encryption. It includes uh, encryption around bank transactions that we currently have. Like this, this isn't even. We're not even talking about blockchain and cryptocurrencies yet. So much of it is dependent on the fact that it's really hard to reverse a cryptographic hash function. Yeah. And so with blockchain, that's like taking it to the next level. You've got digital signatures. Um, you've got these block hashes. You've got these like proof of work um, and these special numbers that uses these hashes. It's, it's a lot of trust on one particular technology. Um, which I guess is the risk, but it's uh, it's also an opportunity for a lot of people as well. Okay. I'm not sure if I've explained it or right. is, is there anything else that's like, question mark? I mean, I feel like I get it more. I just think like that differential in computing power like concerns me more than anything else. I think you're like, right to be concerned. Even if you ignore like the fact that there are these huge conglomerates that have like excessive amounts of computing power if you just like look at the divides in society that exists today and you're mm. like i mean i don't want to just go back to the mra well but like you look at you know those sort of 
very right-wing men's rights activists, the kind of white men that just keep shooting people in the US. Mm-hmm. And you think about the number of them that exist and how, like, generally they just believe things that are not true. So things like how they believe that the wage gap does not exist and how, like, you know, sexual assault doesn't happen as regularly as everyone says it does. And I am concerned if we move too far towards using blockchain to encrypt data and include data and amend data that essentially political lobby groups will have an ability to edit that in a way that is very bad. Yeah, because the the essential problem here is that it's no longer one human, one vote. It is now X amount of computing power, X amount of votes, right? So... I mean, I feel like even if it was one human, one vote, like, we don't just accept majority rule for everything because that's very, very bad for minorities, right? Yes. Like, and so any sort of firm people vote on what is true really worries me. Hmm. It's, um, yeah, no, I think you're completely right to be worried. And even now, with stuff like Bitcoin and digital currencies in general, um, when you look at the people who own these currencies, these supposed new ways we're going to mint our money, it's all white dudes. It is it is literally all, I, like, I'm not exaggerating when I say literally all white dudes. It's something like 90-something percent. <laughs> yeah, I think I got in touch with you a couple of weeks ago because a friend was looking for women who own Bitcoin to interview for an article and just, like, yeah. couldn't find them. Yeah. Technically, I own Bitcoin, but I it was so long ago that, like, I didn't bother remembering the password to the wallet. Oh, um, no. So I was just like, ah, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's worth so much now, Serena. <laughs> I know, it's worth so much. I had, like, $5 worth of it in, like, 2014. Oh, well. <laughs> it's interesting how... And I think a lot of it has to do with the culture around crypto and around Bitcoin. It is very much a boys' club. And it's it's just interesting to see how much culture can drive away adoption of a, of a new technology and really skew the adoption of a new technology towards white dude bros on the internet. Well, it's also, I don't think white dude bros on the internet are necessarily like the prime early adopters of technology. Mm. It's just that... It's the culture around yeah. Bitcoin and blockchain specifically is very dude bro. Yeah, I am. Um, because mm. I was thinking about early adopters for a work thing the other day and just sort of like trying to figure out like most likely early adopters just sort of back of the envelope calculations. And essentially, like if you come up with something useful to a particular population, they will use it. They will generally adopt that quite quickly. The problem is like, there's no clear use case for things like Bitcoin and things like blockchain from an yeah. outsider's perspective and certainly like how I kind of still feel about it. Bitcoin just seems like stocks with a couple of extra steps. Yep. And it's like, <laughs> I might as well invest in the stock market because at least then when I forget my password, I can like call a centralized agency and be like, hey, it's me, I forgot. And they'll be like, yeah. what's your mom's birthday? And I'll tell them and they'll be like, also, what's your middle name? And I'll tell them. And it's like, this is all fairly freely available information a lot of the time. But, you know, New Zealand's got like four million, four million people in it. We're good. Um, <laughs> I just really like being able to call a centralized agency and be like, hey, it's me. I forgot my password again. Can you like let me in, please? Yeah, you know who to chase after. Yeah. You know, to be like Reserve Bank of New Zealand fixes for me. Instead of being like, hey, uh, everyone literally in the entire world fixes for me. <laughs> I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that is the thing with cryptocurrency is that it's not a good current. Like it's, it doesn't perform very well as a currency. The selling point of blockchain isn't that it's a good currency. The selling point of it is that it's decentralized and you've got like fancy ways of trusting this decentralized system but as a currency it absolutely sucks like let me just look up how many transactions bitcoin can process there's also so there was a guardian article in january of this year 
that confirmed that in November the power consumed by the entire Bitcoin network was estimated to be higher than the Republic of Ireland. Yep. And like, that's stressful. (laughs) Yeah. It blows my mind that all these computers are expending all this computational power, literally throwing random numbers at a hash function. That's what they're doing. They're not like folding proteins they're not trying to solve some hard mathematical problem like you'll hear a lot in casual parlance when people talk about bitcoin and talk about the blockchain is that you know all these computers are trying to figure out like really hard mathematical problems not really i mean i guess they're technically trying to solve a hard mathematical problem but they're solving that by literally randomly guessing numbers yeah, they're just brute forcing it, right? Exactly. They're yeah. just brute forcing it because that's that is the most optimal way to do it. Right? So it's like, you know, all, all of the best all of the best ways to do it is no better than guessing. So basically all of these computers are expending all of this power, all of resource, all of this energy to throw random numbers and try and get it. Just to get this like phantom currency that we've somehow created and assigned value to. And we could be doing something useful with this computational power. Yeah, because there are already, like, um, decentralized things that use computational power to, like, look for new stars. And breast cancer things also has that, I think. Um, (laughs) I'm not entirely up to date with some of the decentralized stuff because uh, I have always worked with very private data and so have to do everything by myself. But... Like, that that exists for science, right? Like, you can be using that computational power to do good science. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know, like, computational power has gotten a lot cheaper during the years, of course. And maybe it's just because I was around these, like, decentralized computation networks at a time where computational power was really expensive. But for me to see Bitcoin specifically but cryptocurrencies in general using up so much power to throw random numbers at a at a hash function just really breaks my heart i think particularly considering so in new zealand most of our energy comes from renewable sources uh Mm. depending where you are in the country um but in australia like a lot of our energy just still comes from coal mines (laughs) like so people mining bitcoin here are literally causing global warming to happen more yeah, so um, <sighs> this is a really big problem in China, actually, because the Chinese government is trying very, very hard to move to renewable energy, much harder than any other country that I've heard of. Uh, they're really starting to crack down. Like They are shutting down coal mines, they're shutting down power stations. And what people are observing, what we're observing, is that Chinese citizens are firing up these coal mines back up again, illegally, to power... Just computers like sneaking into coal mines and Bitcoin. Okay. Well, I, like there's communities around these coal mines already, so like they'll be there already, and officials only visit I don't know every so often. So yeah, they're they're firing them back up again to mine Bitcoin. That's some Ocean's Eleven bullshit. <laughs> it's it's some like Black Mirror bullshit. It's absolutely <laughs> surreal to look at like these journalistic photographs and read about articles about these towns built around bitcoin mining not coal mining not any kind of other like literally bitcoin mining entire small economies just around giving power to a bunch of cpus it's absolutely surreal and really dystopian um but it's happening right now as we speak um, oh yeah, that's right. We were talking about how um, inefficient blockchain is as a currency. So um, from what I can tell about this very uninformative graph is that it looks like Bitcoin processes um, a few hundred thousand transactions per day. That's That sounds like a lot, but it's it's actually minuscule because the world is a big place and a lot of transactions happen. Um if you compare that to Visa, I think they do like uh, 1,600 transactions per second. Uh, so it's it's extremely slow and extremely expensive as well. So um, you might 
hear about Bitcoin fees, like transaction and processing fees. And this is basically a fee that you pay when you post a transaction out into the Bitcoin network. Um, and it's to incentivize miners to verify your block. So I'm not sure what the current Bitcoin transaction fee is. Last time I checked, it was 20 USD per transaction. Okay. <laughs> Which is why a lot of... Um, so we've seen Steam drop Bitcoin. Um, what else is dropped? Like you'll see a lot of large companies drop Bitcoin processing because it's just not usable as a currency. It's like if I want to buy... Let's say I'm splashing out. Let's say I'm buying like a $20 Steam game. <laughs> and... Um, on top of that, I have to pay something like $20 worth of uh, Bitcoin transaction fees. And it will take more than a minute. Again, these processing times change, but last time I checked, it was something like two minutes um, to for it to go out to the network and to broadcast and like, do its thing for it to be verified. So I'm sitting here waiting for my Steam game. I've paid the $20 it costs and I've paid the $20 transaction fee on top of that and I'm just waiting and it comes back to me and because Bitcoin as a currency is so volatile and everything the value of most things is still set in uh, US currency mm. by the time it comes back to me the value of Bitcoin might have changed the value of Bitcoin might have dropped so I no longer have like I, I no longer complete this transaction I I need to pay um the missing amount essentially so okay maybe it's dropped a little bit and i'm short like 50 cents if i still want the steam game i'm going to have to pay another 50 cents in bitcoin pay a 20 dollars transaction fee on top of that have it go out into the void <laughs> and wait and then it'll come back and by that time bitcoin might have gone down or up it is unusable as an everyday currency it sucks. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous, which is why you see a lot of companies dropping Bitcoin when they used to process it quite happily. The salon down the road has um, a We Accept Bitcoin sticker. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to see if they still do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm looking at a chart for um, average transaction fee for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It looks like at the end of 2017... It went up to $55 per transaction. This is all in USD. Oh my gosh. I know. That's a, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that is a lot of money for one transaction. Yeah, the economics around speculative assets is a whole other discussion. But that's what Bitcoin itself has become. Well, I mean, so, so I recently sold a lot of my stocks, but I still have a tiny baby stock portfolio. And because I don't know how to do things myself, I have to pay a broker fee for every transaction, which is typically like thirty dollars mm -hmm. through who I do my transactions through. Um, and it can be cheaper than that, but it's generally like twenty to thirty dollars. But literally, all you ever do with that is buy a bunch of stocks or sell a bunch of stocks. There's no like trying yep. to use them to pay for things. Yeah. And so, like that kind of fee is like that's much more doable, right? Because like generally, you're sort of buying and selling in hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of things. Probably more than that if you're very rich. Um, <laughs> but to... Yeah, no, I think I think the analogy for Bitcoin as a stock that is just, like, being used badly is probably much closer to the truth than anything else. Because if those fees seem more like brokerage fees... They than like, basically are, yeah. yeah. Than like well, debit card fees. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is, like, the... The paradox of Bitcoin, right? You have this technology called blockchain, um, which is generally basically a way to offload trust, but it depends on a lot of slow computational work. And it, the thing that wins in the world of blockchain is computational work. So the more work that you've done, the more true you become. Whereas Bitcoin is a currency. But for a currency to work, you need to be able to process a lot of data. You need to be able to process and verify a lot of transactions very quickly because they happen a lot, everywhere, by everyone. So if your system can't handle that, then it's it's not working out well as a currency. Like it could theoretically be a currency, but that's not what it functionally is. 
And can I just say how badass it is that you have stocks? <laughs> well, I mean, I had to I had to sell a bunch of them to get the capital to buy a house, but whatever, I guess. <laughs> That's still badass. Like, I... I have, I remember thinking at uni, like, oh, I should probably read about how stocks work. And I, like, opened up an article and then I was like, actually, I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> um, stocks are gambling with less risk sometimes. So essentially, like, to buy stocks, you're betting that a company is going to do well. That's generally how the stock market functions. Um, but also you're betting that other people are also going to think that company is going to do well. And those yeah. things don't necessarily always align. So like I bought a, um, God, I think I put like $300 into a company called Ike GPS. And I did that because they'd recently closed a deal in Europe to start putting their GPS in a bunch of cars there. And like, um, they were partnering with like some really fancy car things. And then they just like, just lost everything. <laughs> Like, went dramatically down. Like, I couldn't even... I think Ike was the one that I couldn't even sell anymore because they're no longer listed, like, on the stock exchange. So I can't even, like, remove them from my portfolio, which is infuriating. Um, But I also knew, like, going into that, that it was risky and I was going to do that. And, I mean, like, Bitcoin is a similar thing, where it's like you're betting that everyone is going to reckon that it's good, right? Yeah. 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 I guess I technically have stocks because I have a KiwiSaver. Yes. And those go in the stock market. Yeah. You should check um, what they're invested in. Yes, I have. Oh, okay. I cool. have. No weapons, we've, no we've tobacco. Been through that scandal. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, like that's that's what Bitcoin and uh, I would say the vast majority of the new cryptocurrencies that are coming up are basically speculative assets. They're a pump and dump scheme, basically. So it's very easy to make your own cryptocurrency, um, as you can probably guess by the fact that we have a very legitimate, actually, currency called Dogecoin. Yes. And that's actually worth a lot. So it's very easy to basically start a cryptocurrency, um, market it to a lot of people, convince them that it's only ever going to go up, sell it, uh, and then you have free money. Mm. Yes, uh, that is a thing... That if you wish, you you can do. Um, I wouldn't I recommend mean, it. Seems like a for scam. Moral but reasons. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like if you had a, if you created a company that was just a shell, mm. and you went out to investors and you convinced them that this company was going to make them heaps of money and that they were going to get, uh, they were going to get shares for like cheap. And it's only ever going to go up, and then you sell all your shares, and then you go away and you disappear. Um, it's it's basically like doing that, except um, we have laws around fraud and lying to people. And insider um, trading. We don't really have laws around digital currencies. Um, well, I mean, this is ones. this is sort of like another... I mean, digital currencies, but also things like loot boxes are more examples of the fact that laws aren't totally sure on how to deal with technology things and how to class things and because technology is moving so quickly and things are advancing so quickly it took like a while for loot boxes i think they're classed as gambling in new zealand now adam goodall wrote a very good piece about it in the spin-off which i'll try and find but it's that time lapse between like a thing happening everyone getting excited and wasting a bunch of money computational power and probably causing global warming to get a bit worse and Mm -hmm. the law being like hold on we should do a thing about this yeah, And, like, the additional difficulty with Bitcoin, so, like, with loot boxes and video games, generally you have a publisher where you can be like, no, this this is gambling. <sighs> it's gambling, okay? Whereas because yeah. Bitcoin is so decentralized, there's no one you can go to and be like, this this seems bad and, like, it should be regulated. And, I mean, I think mm-hmm. the kind of people, like you said, like, 90% white guys, like, neoliberals, generally, like, borderline libertarians who are like, the government should only do minor things and never tax us. They're not going to play very nicely at the point in time at which someone realizes that this really needs some kind of control system on it. Yeah. If you're wondering why the reason people are making so much money is because A, it's a non-regulated market, and B, people are losing a lot of money. That's why people are making a lot of money, as it has always gone in history for 
thousands of years. The other thing that's absolutely wild to me is how Bitcoin mining has like dramatically driven up the price of like graphics cards. I am so mad at Bitcoin <laughs> for that. I am so mad. Like I, I really, I really wanted to build a PC, and that's just ridiculously expensive now. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm not building this to mine currency. I just want to play some games. <laughs> just let me play some games. There was a story a couple of years ago, I think now, about a, a mining clan who needed chips. And this was during a time when Bitcoin was going up and it was like doing its ridiculous thing of going up. Um, and what they did was that they hired a Boeing 747 to fly over these CPUs because the cost of hiring a Boeing 747 to fly over these computational machines would be offset by the money to be earned in the time they would have had to wait for the CPUs to be shipped to them. Oh my god. So they did it. They they hired a... a pl- you know what? Let me actually find... Because I could just be telling fibs. Could be one of those urban Bitcoin legends. It could be an urban Bitcoin legend. Um, but here is an article from Business Insider, July of last year, 2017, titled, Cryptocurrency miners are renting entire Boeing 747s just to stay in the game. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's kind of like taking this whole idea of currency which is if you think about it a really strange idea in itself that we would trust that these pieces of paper and these bits of metal and these numbers on our computer screens have value that's kind of weird and it's taking that idea to its like extreme conclusion where we're now doing ridiculous things like hiring entire planes um, and you know spinning up illegal coal mines just to increment numbers i think that's a very good if slightly apocalyptic note to end on um (laughs) (laughs) hey thanks for listening to things of interest this week we've talked about blockchain um and i now have a vaguely better idea of how blockchain functions and will be able to intelligently engage in those conversations when they happen at work, which is a blessing. Um, I hope you've learned a lot too. Uh, I've been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, if it wasn't too confusing, if you actually did get something out of it, or if you didn't, please leave us a message. You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook. Our email is castinginterest at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed it, please do give us some stars, give us some reviews on the iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as always, stay interesting.